Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Considering that I fell in love with the music of Bob Mould when I was just a teenager, it was pretty trippy to get to ask him what music he fell in love with as a teenager, and that's one of the many topics we get into in episode 23 of LSQ. Uh, it's an interview with the great Bob Mould of Sugar and Husker Du and Bob Mould's solo fame. He just recently released an excellent new solo album called Sunshine Rock that Rolling Stone aptly described as savagely upbeat. So we talk about Sunshine Rock, but also about Bob's songwriting process, um, about the music he loved as a kid and more. And after the interview with Bob, an excerpt from uh, an interview I did at Lollapalooza about a decade ago with Mavis Staples. So uh, that's ahead as well in episode Episode 23 of LSQ. Thank you so much, Bob Mould, for meeting me in the Valley. It's good to be here. Also thanks to my hosts, Shirley Halpern and Tom Monahan, who've been kind enough to lend us their dining room. It's perfect. It's the, so beautiful. In the middle of a Monday. I would describe the interior, but I know that might not be appropriate, so I'll <laughs> It's vibey. That. It's hella vibey. <laughs> and a little cul-de-sac up here. It is. Um, I, was, I was thinking about all the places you've lived, oh all the gosh. places you've been, and the fact that this new album, Sunshine Rock, I know was made in part in Berlin, which is, you know, as far flung as, as you've been for a a long period of time in your life. Yeah. And I wonder, generally speaking, if you think that your music over time does reflect a sense of place or if when you're writing songs, whether in the moment or in retrospect, you, there is a sense of place about them to you. Yeah, definitely. I think environment is always key to the process. Um, you know, when I started writing music professionally, I guess in the late seventies with Husker Du, it was very, very cold all the time. Minnesota was a, you know, the joke would be, what do you do with those six months of the year where you can't be outside? You know, you, you start a band. (laughs) So (laughs) it sort of feeds that, that creativity in that way. Um, yeah, I mean, all cities and, and farms and anywhere they have a, they have a rhythm, they have a pace, they have sounds and smells and customs that, you know, and, and I think in the case of Berlin, you know, a lot of customs that were new to me, 
mm-hmm. you know, and just, you know, sort of the methodology of their culture and how that day in, day out, when you start yeah. to, you start to learn the pace and well, the movement. What's an example of a, of a custom that, that, um, well, I guess comparing and contrasting to San Francisco where I spend the, 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 the lesser part of each year these days, uh, you know, San Francisco is pretty free range, you know, out in California, you can just sort of walk wherever you want and, mm-hmm. you know, just jump out in the middle of traffic and do whatever you want to do, you know, <laughs> sort of like Frogger, you know, a little bit. Whereas, uh, you know, Berlin, for instance, every, everybody seems to walk on the right as we learned in school. Right. Um, there's natural adhesion to order, natural adhesion to order. There's things like, uh, you know, the, you know, people... favorite hardcore band, natural adhesion to order. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you probably, I mean, people probably know about Amphelman, the, the little green man that's crossing. It's like a crosswalk thing. It's like a green man with a hat. And then there's the red person like. Wow, so he's a mascot of, of traffic. He's order. the don't walk. Yeah, but but what happens is, and you learn it learn it the hard way. Is if you if one like say if I were to jaywalk in front of a mother with a child, I would instantly be made an example of by the mother. You know, leaning down to the child and pointing at the man who crossed wrong. Wow, cultural norms. So you just sort of get, you have to learn these things the hard way. And I'm pretty good with modeling behavior, so it's, you know. (laughs) So tell me more about what brought you, did you go to Berlin to make music or did you make music in Berlin because you were there? Um, I went to Berlin to take a break, to take a break from San Francisco, to take a break from the very busy decade that I had had so far. Um you know, from the, you know, from the two and a half years of writing the book, which came out in 11 and the Disney hall show and the sugar reissues, and then the three albums and reissues and constant touring. Uh, I knew that I was going to have a break after, you know, I was going to break at some point when the patch, the sky campaign winded, you know, started to wind down in, in 16 and Berlin's a place I've always loved. I've always gone there on tours. I have a lot of friends who live there musicians and artists and, and such. So it just felt like, Hey, if you're ever going to do something like this, this good time, you know, you're still, you're still very, very mobile. You can run and walk and climb stairs and do all those things, you know, the stuff that we, the stuff that we do. And, you know, it's just, how long did you go? Um, well, I was go, I spent about, Three months at the beginning of 2016, and then uh, made the move in September of 2016. Got my residence permit at the beginning of 17, and that just expired. So I'm in the middle of renewal with the government. So I hope you know, not wood that goes so well. So ever, so essentially ever since, except for coming back to do some of this. Coming back to do this. Coming back to Oakland to make the record right. because that's the studio. You know, Tiny Telephone Oakland was the studio that I wanted to make the record in. But yeah, so you know, my Berlin life is 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 you. You know, it's a quiet, you know, it's a, it's a neighborhood life. It reminds me of the one I had in the West village. It reminds me of the one I have in the Castro. It's, you know, sort of a little gay neighborhood and don't really go too far out of it unless you're, you know, going to visit friends somewhere else. And Do you think that it appeals to you to carve out new comfort zones for yourself in different, I mean, is there, do you have a sort of a cycle of where you're like, yeah, I made myself at home in this place. And then after a certain period of time, it appeals to you to do that somewhere, to do that again. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I'm, you know, I'm incredibly blessed in the sense that my profession allows me to live anywhere yeah because i'm self i'm 
completely self-employed in the in the Senate, you know, that I don't have to be anywhere. Right. So when anyone is afforded that luxury, I would suggest if you get it in your lifetime, take advantage of it. Yeah. You know, because so many people have, you know, have jobs that force them to be in a place and they have families and, and children that need to be, you know, and that's a 20 year chunk if you have kids and yeah so i do like the i do like those new experiences it it tends to break any it breaks certain patterns and habits that i have but i also carry so many of the rituals and routines with me so yeah it's a you know it's a combination thing um so yeah and it's i don't i don't feel like i'm chasing inspiration but it's i know that i will find it at some point in the journey you know it may take a few months it may take a few years right then you you once you wear your path in and you start getting routines then that's for me at least that's when the work starts to fall into place right and you weren't there in berlin for very long it it sounds like when you you know it's recent enough that you must have started thinking about this group of songs for sunshine rock pretty soon yeah yeah i started the writing over there at the end of 2016 uh, I came back for a little bit, and then when I went back in the in the middle of 2017, that's when the writing really took hold, and you know the the title track made itself known to me, and then that was the the tent pole that you know got everything else moving forward. Right. I mean, I know that you've said that you're sort of never not writing that you're always writing all the time. Keeping notes at least and right. you know keeping track of melodies and things, but yeah, it's funny because I know other songwriters that and it, and it runs the gamut. I know some people who just tour for 2 years and then they take 6 months off to write and then they, you know, they write, they go somewhere like they go to a retreat or they go to an island or they do things and they get themselves in that mode whereas I'm more of just a day-by-day notes kind right. of guy. Right, batch mode versus yep. right. It's always, always a little, always accumulating, and then there inside, inside any writing cycle, there'll be intense pockets of activity where three or four songs might happen in a week. You know, where just something breaks. You know, there's, there's right, like big, and that's a, a and that must be a mo- you know that's I'm guessing sort of the moment when you realize like yeah, there's some this is. Yep. This could be something. Yes. Indeed. Or that this it's it stands up and says I'm of I'm a vibe or yep, whatever. I'm the yep, I'm the thing you're looking for. So. And so Sunshine Rock, the um sorry cat oh, cat no, zone. No, we'll um shout out to the cats and all of the allergies they cause. <laughs> uh cats, if you're listening, chill with that. Um yep. Sunshine Rock, it's there in the title. I mean, without even pressing play on it, you you, you have a sense that it's gonna be this the, the vibe that you get, which mm-hmm. Um, and I know that Patch the Sky was the end of a of an album trilogy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, loosely speaking, right? Yep. Every, everyone was saying that, and I just sort of went with it. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like, why fight the... Listen, I'm not going to impose some narrative on your shit, Bob. Come why, on. Why, no. fight, why, why, why fight the narrative? <laughs> I want the truth. As long as it's Fake not a news. crazy narrative. <laughs> um, uh, right, but but Sunshine Rock leapt out to you as the begin as like, yeah, this is a vibe to pursue, because why? why after, that- after two dark records informed by loss of parents in succession you know it's just like you know why you know do i really want to keep going mining this you yeah. know intentionally or you know just unconditionally giving myself over to it over and over and over and it's tough because you know the sad truth is that it 
keeps going on. But, you know, at some point we can make a choice. Do Are we only going to look at this darkness all the time and dwell on that? Or do we want to get out and have a life and have some good experiences? And if you go out and have a couple of really good experiences, like in succession, and it sort of spills out in a song, and then you go, ah, those are the good times. Yeah. You know, it's it's Then you just go in that direction. Right. And also, I'm sure at this point, knowing what kinds of songs, knowing how much how many shows you're going to play on an average album cycle and, and what songs feel the best to play, yeah. um, I would imagine is a factor when you're writing at this point, because let's be real, it's a lot of shows. and It's a lot of shows. It's a lot of work. There's a big songbook and how do I put it all together? And, you know, do I, you know, do I frame a tour in all happy songs? Probably not. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> even even you know i mean even in this even in this album i look at it as like three acts you know i mean the middle part the middle four or five you know they really get they know they do sort of go yeah, downward it gets heavy yeah and then it you know and then it clears back up at the end but yeah. it's um you know i've i've made records where it does not clear up and you know that's that's cool too so it's nice to have the nice to have the balance on this one the the balance tipping more positively at what point how old were you when the songs just started coming to you when you started nine nine, <laughs> nine years old yeah 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 i started writing young writing on an uh, on an on a electric chord organ okay that was my instrument of choice i taught myself piano as a kid like listening to the radio you know so emulating songs that i would i would hear it on the pop radio and i'd be able to pick it out and play it right away so i had that going for me and then at nine it was the you know six major chords six minor chord buttons on the left and two octaves of keys on the right and you just start writing songs right right. and where did the where did the organ come from oh my folks bought it for me right yeah it was like a christmas gift because they knew that i loved the piano at my at the house that i used to go to where i could play piano nice and but i mean did you did the writing was there an intention to write or was there just a burst of it um it's just emulating the things you love you just copy the songs you love i mean that's what any musician does for the first number of years of their life right (laughs) right right and so the first couple of things that you wrote what were they most what what were they most derivative of? Pro, uh, probably Beatles, you know, right. mid '60s pop, writing songs about my family, about my dog, about flowers, about stuff the kids, nine year olds, would write about. Right. You know, and no, did nothing it, too existential. Did it feel know? though like? Did it feel like an important kind of outlet or a catharsis? Yeah. Even then, it was the it was the it was the outward expression of the sort of hypnotic nature that music had on me as a kid you know growing up in sort of a noisy violent household to have those records be those seven inch singles be the salvation you know to take all of that in and then learning how to let it back out that's what songwriting became at what at what age did you start to feel disconnected from what you were hearing on the radio or sort of alienated by what felt what felt like it was being kind of shoved into the mainstream well i went through that i went through that period up to the early 70s listening to amazing music you know all the motown stuff and beatles birds hollies beach boys all the great all the great stuff and then 70s you know i mean that period i was you know in my early teens you know probably more like the Bay City Rollers, Kiss kind of things that your friends are listening to, Fleetwood Mac, whatever, trying, wanting to fit in. And then I think, you know, for me, it was, you know, it was the first Ramones album, you know, and that whole first wave of punk rock in 76 that that was when I realized, no, this is, this is what I can do. 
Right. And did, was there a record store at, at near home that was you would frequent? No, or? I grew up in a small farm town in upstate New York called Malone. And the nearest record store that would have anything resembling punk rock would have been either Montreal, 50 miles away, Plattsburgh, 50 miles away, or Burlington, 60 miles away. So that I would have to like make efforts, you know, get my dad to take me to the record store and it would be a whole day thing and I would have a list of things that I wanted to buy so wow so and things that you had read about in fancy read about in in like rock scene magazine especially yeah right and so how was how often were were you able to make a pilgrimage a couple times a year or something probably like every couple months yeah, yeah. Nice. So you'd have to have my list together, you know. Yeah, I, I know get... that. I know that you've said the that your dad like gave you music, which is an expression I love. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that it's that yeah, that it's the appreciation for music being a gift that could be bestowed by particular people that mm-hmm. you encounter in your life, or specific artists even being given to you by specific people in your life. So how yeah. how did in what way did did your dad give you music? Well, literally, it was the uh, the family business was like Adobe Gillis mom and pop grocery store. We lived, you know, in the house that was attached to the grocery store that you would when the buzzer went off and a customer came in, you'd go through the kitchen and go wait on people. And because of that, and it was a small town, uh, the vending company who sold cigarettes and tobacco also stocked the jukeboxes like at the truck stop diner. And when those singles got pulled off, I would get those as toys, like for a penny a piece. So that's the, uh, that would be the, that was the first, you know, true sort of giving me music kind of thing. Yeah. And being, and you know, and then, you know, and then subsequently just being really supportive of it. So both parents. So it was, yeah. So it was, it was a literal. (laughs) Right. Right. Totally. Yeah. Literally giving you this, the songs that you were early, early obsessions. Yeah. And those, and those boxes of singles are within a four foot reach of my work desk at all times. So it's not like they've ever gone anywhere. Wow. Yeah. So it's, yeah, they just sit right there. Yeah. (laughs) It's good to have some things that are, that you just never let go of, you Mm -hmm. know, like in keeping all things in their proper place that you have to let let go of a lot of stuff and not hoard things obviously, but to have some things where you're just like, you know what, these Mm. As the popular Netflix home reorganization <laughs> series goes, spark joy. They spark joy. They spark joy. I must know where they are and be able to touch them from time to time and feel their vibes. It's 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 the it's the encyclopedia of popular music. It just sits right there. If I get stuck, all I have to do is go look in the box, and I'll put something on, and I'll hear a sound, and go, "Oh, that's what was missing." Right. You know, not like oh, I'm going to lift that out of that song, but you know, just right. the essence of. Of sound and stories, right? Which makes it make make more sense that some of the early Husker Du singles were covers of mm-hmm. that of you know tunes that may have been in you know Eight Miles High. I'm yeah. guessing may have been in that box or something. Eight Miles High was a was a that was like a that was a, a at the time a more recent appreciation, right? You know, going back and revisiting the birds, you know, a little bit deeper in 1982 1983 because it was so the opposite of what i was making and what so many of us thought we were supposed to be doing with hardcore punk where there was not you know it was kill hippies no melody you know we can all protest together but not not with them and not with that music you know so to go against that grain and listen to the music and and find the value in it I mean, that was a, that was a, that was, you know, 82, 83 kind of thing. 
So in the early days in Minneapolis, what were, were you, did you have to get comfortable on stage or what did you have to do to kind of, no, I, there was, there was nothing to be afraid of, you know, as a kid, just sitting this, it was an 18 year old kid just doing this thing. It felt, it felt completely natural right off the bat. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm sure I was drinking enough that I didn't have any like clear fear (laughs) right might have had cloudy concerns but not any kind of oh my god what am i doing right i'm just doing this thing and i was you know very lucky to have you know to have you know great people to work with and also have really you know you know some really good mentors early on you know just people that were in the scene yeah yeah specifically you know a fellow named chris osgood who was in a band uh three-piece in minneapolis called the suicide commandos Okay. And I became familiar with their music through Roxine magazine. Um, when it was when I was still living in upstate New York, I knew I'm going to school in St. Paul. I just got a scholarship. Oh, here's a band from Minnesota. I should buy this record before I go. And I listened to the record and loved it. And the first weekend I got to the Twin Cities, they were playing. And sadly, it was the their second to last shows, I think. They were just breaking up. But the good news is I got to befriend Chris Osgood, the guitarist, and took a, ostensibly took a couple guitar lessons from him. And he said... Uh, we're done here. You need to just go start a band and write songs and play. You're more than ready to do this. Because at that point, you too, you'd been writing songs for nine years. Or oh, something. I've been on and off. Yeah, yeah. I've been. I'd been. I'd, I sort of knew the. You know, I knew the the architecture of writing songs. I didn't. I didn't have a, a whole portfolio, but I certainly had a, a knowledge of how to do it. And it was funny because in the as time went on, you know, Chris was also you know gave guitar, guitar lessons to Dave Perner and to Craig Finn. So, yeah, so Chris is one of the most influential people and, you know, this is probably not known by a lot of folks. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, so it was, you know, so I mean, to have someone like Chris sort of instilling that confidence early on and, you know, to, to address that fear or concern of getting on a stage when, you know, when the, the band that, you know, when the first, you know, the first band you get to see your first weekend in college and the guy's telling you, go do it and you just do it. And then you're off to the races. Yeah. Yeah. You don't even know any better than nope. to be like, feel nope. to feel lucky about it or something. It's or just happening. Do, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, when you have this, when you're, when you have the foundation of a scene, I guess there is, you get to, you get to grow and incubate at a more yep. reasonable at a more reasonable speed. Yeah, and I think I think at that time in in Minneapolis there was you know such a great a great network. I mean, the Longhorn was such a great punk rock club. You know, I mean, everybody played there. You know, Blondie, Police, every you know, just go down the list. You know, everybody, I saw the Buzzcocks, Gang of Four. You know, it's like yeah, you know what? Who didn't I see in that club? And then you had places like the Walker Art Center, who you know were do were so supportive of new music and you know and progressive music, experimental music. You know. Yeah, I mean, there was, you know, Twin Tone Records, you know, right. was, was also there. And, uh, yeah, it's just, I mean, there was like a real, there was a, a, you know, a really good support system in place for new bands. And did you feel once once you had started playing shows in earnest that you were, that there, that you were part of a specific world? I mean, I feel like artists often don't, you know, they're... They don't really feel like there's a scene around them when it's happening, and then in retrospect, it's like, yeah, that was we were all in it together in a way. Oh no, we we sort of crashed the scene and made ourselves known and never went away. <laughs> it's like, no, we're here, we're part of it now, we're in it. I mean, there was a little bit of a 
a little bit of a rub with being from a being a St. Paul band as opposed to a Minneapolis band. There was a little bit of rivalry there, but you know, as as the eighties went on, I mean, that just became sort of a blurred distinction, right. at least to me. I mean, maybe you know, maybe the other guys in Husker still identified as St. Paul, but I mean, to me, it was just the Twin Cities. Right. I mean, what were some of the bands that came up in that scene at like, you know, sort of after Husker Du was already established and and a big band that you thought were that you were even in the moment you you kind of knew? Well, I think the I think the the band, you know, Husker Du and Replacements were pretty much at the same time. And both of us knew all of the guys in Loud Fast Rules that eventually became Soul Asylum. Right. You know, and they were the baby band. You know, there was bands like Ground Zero and Auto's Chemical Lounge and Rifle Sport, Man Sized Action. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of bands that we were able to help, much as we had gotten help from people. Right. You know, we started an independent label called Reflex Records that went through Dutch East India Distribution. We got to meet other people, you know, like Gerard Cosby. Who had Homestead at the time, you know, and we just, and then you start this, this, all this networking starts, you know, nationwide and all over the world. But, you know, locally there was, you know, uh, you know, we would do a lot of all ages shows, host bands coming from out of town. You know, I mean, there was, you know, the, 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 you know, it, there was a lot of give and take in the scene in Minneapolis, you know, whatever, whatever generosity you received from other bands, you would pay it back. You know, so, and that was really a, you know, just a Midwest thing to do, I guess. <laughs> right. And do you still get the same feeling now when you hear a, a new artist that intrigues you? That, or is there a layer of cynicism about new music now? When I hear new artists, I can, I, th- I, 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 I'm rarely fooled. You know, between you know, genuine and musician that makes records because they can or something you know right. like uh, you can tell the people where it's their their absolute passion you know like the first time i met Chaz, you know from toro right it, you know it's just like of course i could hear it in your work and now i there you are sitting backstage at rickshaw in san francisco just pouring over stuff on youtube constantly right up until stage time you just can't get enough yeah you're absorbing everything i see this so do you yeah. go see many shows in berlin when you've got time? Yeah, yeah i do i mean what's the spot that, what's the spot to see a show um there's a uh fest cell in kreuzberg seen up uh, so like ty siegel had a crazy show there. Uh, Huxley's is a bigger room. I just hung out and saw, uh, I'm blanking as Kurt Vile. Oh, nice. You know, or go to like SO36, which is like the CBs of Berlin, you know, to go see somebody like Sheer Mag, you know, right. and stuff. You know, go see, go to, go to Clubland over in the East and go see local bands like Pabst who are opening a bunch of the European shows in March, you know, go see another three piece and they just flurry and go, I want you guys to play on my tour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Keep us honest. Cause you're really good. A lot of stuff that shreds. It sounds yeah. like you, that you still love stuff that shreds. Yeah. There's that. And I mean, you know, there's also, you know, I've had some really, really magical moments with you know, big clubs, you know, like Berghain, which is, you know, sort of the temple of techno for the entire universe, okay. you know, to, to go to that place and, you know, be able to see Daniel Miller do a sort of a live tractor type set or 
you know, go see, you know, go on Easter Sunday and stand in that line of judgment, hoping that you'll get in, you know, because all you want to do is go see Todd Edwards on Easter Sunday <laughs> in the small club, you know? Yeah. You know, those are pretty magical things, yeah. right? You know, so it's, yeah. Yeah. You've got to be in a city where you have access to all of that stuff. I mean, it sounds like the places that you've lived are all places that have yep. where you can choose on any, in any given week. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's nice there because it's such a great, you know, it's like there is as much stage diving as there is sampling. I mean, it's really just, it's a rock tone. Yeah, it's a techno I'm hoping tone. to get over it's... to Berlin for uh, the people music event yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, when they have it this mm-hmm. year. Um, I think that's, that's July or August. It's like like later in the summer, yeah. And uh, yeah, Funkhaus, the old broadcasting setup out, out in the east is really cool. I want to talk a little more about songwriting and just sort of how the songwriting process works for you. Mm-hmm. When you have, you know, as we talked about earlier, there's always sort of ideas coming into mm-hmm. the fray. But when you actually are devoting yourself to bringing that, grabbing at it and bringing it down into yep. something, where do you go? What, what What's the process look like? Um, I go to my room. I go to my room to work. Um, the inspiration comes anywhere. You have to be smart in the way that you capture the essence of it. Um, for me, I do not try to edit. I do not try to rhyme. I do not try to structure. You just take the moments and hold them and look at them and let them shimmer. And then you have them. And then you try to figure out how do I put this together? How do I do the, how do I catch this without destroying it? And you sort of catch moments and ideas. And then if it's a really good thing, then I just sit at the desk and the work begins. You know, how much is it? You know, where, what do I do with this? Where is the emphasis? Is this the chorus? Is this the title? Who are these characters? How do I tell? How do I set time and place in the first verse? Where do I, where do I bring the conflict in? How do I resolve it? You know, those kinds of things. I mean, that's what storytelling is all about. I try not to get in the way of the muse it might, if I have a good day, that's the good day I just described where you wake up, where, where I wake up in the morning, I sit down and something falls out and I realize, okay, this is, I'm here for the whole day. Right. I'm not moving. I'm not eating. I'm not doing anything. This is what I do until it's, until it's in the shape of a song more or less. And then I put it away and I sleep. And when I wake up the next morning, if the song is not in my head, I have to question it. Because if I haven't been dreaming it all night and it's not there the next morning, it may be, I'm like, oh no, what it, what was the hook again? I spent all day, what, it, you know, I mean, if, if I have to do that, I'm questioning. But if I wake up and the whole thing is still totally there and I'm like, oh, the bridge after the solo just arrived, yeah. you know, before my first cup of coffee, I got to go right to work. So yeah. that's, you know. And so, and then from there, how many layers of refinement do you feel comfortable imparting to something that's that good an idea for? Right off the bat, um, in '88 with '88 with workbook, I was v- making very elaborate demos, and I continued that up through a couple years ago. And now I try to not color every stitch of paper with color. Right. I try to. The, it feels like you know now working with John and Jason, my rhythm section on four records. Now I've learned the less the less boundaries I put on things, the better results I get. 
So it's like, it's almost like you, you get, uh, a lot of people call it demoitis. Right. You know, when you, the demo is perfect and nothing, you know, any version you ever record will not even be close. Right. So I try, so I've found ways to, to avoid getting demoitis now. So it's a little less detailed, but they're still pretty elaborate, you know. Uh, structurally, songs, I always want to have the song, the, 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 I want to have the foundation in place. I want to have the architecture of the song in place. The, the height of the song and stories, the ornamentation, you know, the stuff, the sparkles and garlands and all those things, that comes later. Um, word editing, I'm a little more sensitive of, you know, avoiding word repetition or holding pattern words like just, you know, and I think that was a result of editing through a book. Right, <laughs> yeah. So now all of a sudden I have, this is like another concern is, you know, now, you know, it's like, is this a Chicago manual of style? <laughs> approved moment <laughs> well yeah it's just, I, it's just stuff i mean we get it you know i mean we have full liberty but when right. when you learn not to use holding pattern words all the time right and again because if you're going to be singing that and annoyed with it when you have to sing exactly. it many nights in a row you'd be like why didn't i just change that back then and with this record with sunshine rock i mean you know that covers the shocking blue cover song opened up that's that was the key that opened the door for the vocal approach on this record okay you know singing someone else's words handed to you by your engineer printed off you know, so somewhere lyrics.com right. and it may not even be the real words. Right. And realizing that I could not sing the, that person's melody line and having to make up a melody line on the spot and keeping it first take and going, maybe I should sing my whole record this way. Yeah. So then I'm just, I'm now when I'm singing on Sunshine Rock, the album, I'm, I'm improvising as I go, you know, and around the fifth or six, you know, around take three or four, I might go, why am I getting tongue tied right there? Oh, that S to that T to that S is too many, one too many of a good thing. You know, it's like, it's like I hear it, I hear it in the drums, you know, it's, it's that's, you know, but like singing, you know, <laughs> so tough shit. It's like, that's yeah. what, why am I getting tongue tied? And then, you know, and I get, I have my big book with all my notes and my words and big caps with a Sharpie and I get out my white tape and you know, after take four, I'm like, ah, oh, that's why. That's like just, it's too much, too much sibilance right there. That's why I'm getting tongue tied. A little strip of tape goes over and I change the word and then, oh, so much easier. You know, so I mean, it goes right up until take 12 when I throw the white flag, you know, and just say comp it. I think the top of seven and the back of eight was it. What do you think? I'm leaving the room. <laughs> do you rescue songs from a bin of your own or, or once you're done with them, are you done? I mean, if you, if it, if it doesn't have the thing where the, you woke up with it in your mm -hmm. head, if it just fl floats away, do you ever go out to that Island and pick up one of those songs, bring it back to the shore? Uh, no, I know where the scrap heap is. Okay. And if I need, if I think I might've left something of value behind, I might go pick it up, but usually no, you just carry the good ones with you. Right. It's, you would be, yeah, I'd be hoarding riffs forever. <laughs> But and and the and you know and it's funny because sometimes twenty thirty years later a melody will reappear and it will be exactly what's needed, right? And I and I'd be like, wait, that I thought, yeah, I remember this one now, and I didn't use it. Okay, that's okay. And you know, even a bigger example I think on this record would be, would be the song Western Sunset, which is the closer for Sunshine Rock. This is the third time we've taken that song into the studio. You know, we took it in for Silver Age, and then we took it in for Beauty and Ruin. Wonderful song. Neither time did it stick. 
And I didn't know why. And this time, you know, when Sunshine Rock appeared, I go, oh, I have my opener. Oh, and guess what? I have my closer. I need to fix this song. Whatever was broken was Western Sunset now needs to be fixed. So when I pulled the song back up and told John and Jason, guess what we're trying again? And they're all like, Western Sunset? I'm like, yep. And I think I fixed it. You know, it was basically what happened. It was like intro, long verse, half bridge, long verse, long bridge chorus. I got rid of the first verse and the half bridge. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, phew, I don't need an hour to tell this, to set the stage for this story. And all of a sudden we got to the chorus and the song, everything else stayed completely intact. And it was this majestic finish, you know, and we'd been waiting for seven years to get this one right. (laughs) So so it's a crazy process. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's... That's the that's that's like an hour of my normal day right there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> constantly. But obviously, it brings you yeah. great joy. Yeah, yeah. Just when, yeah, yeah, knowing that that's what you get to do tomorrow or the next day or yeah. the next day. Yeah, except yeah, except when bored in the supermarket line in Berlin and I'm like humming or singing or constructing something in my head and everybody's staring at me and then the, you know the cashier just yeah, like are you singing? <laughs> sorry. We don't sing in the supermarket. So, sorry. <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to wrap, Bob. Right. Thank you so much for uh, for stopping by. Thank you, Jenny. I was doing some reporting at Lollapalooza in summer of 2010 for Rolling Stone when I had the opportunity to interview the incredible and legendary gospel and R&B singer Mavis Staples. She was 70 at the time, but had more energy than pretty much anyone I'd ever interviewed before and probably since. That summer, she was leading up to the release of an album called You Are Not Alone that went on to win the Grammy for Best Americana Album, and which was produced by Wilco's Jeff Tweedy, who it turns out was not just a great creative collaborator, but also a great provider of in-studio amenities. Take a listen. And he's so comical. This dude is so comical. I told us to this was the happiest session. You know, could do him laughing most of the time. He's just witty and he's quick and anything that comes out of his mouth is funny. Yeah. And then he the, the session was so cool because he had a caterer. A caterer at the session. <laughs> I said, hey, Tweety, you got a caterer. Mavis, did Rockwood have a caterer for you? I said, no, Rockwood didn't have a caterer. He kept shocking me. The next thing he had was a teleprompter. A teleprompter. You know, I normally, I got my my, my uh, music stand yeah. and my song on the paper I've written out on the music stand, but there's a teleprompter rolling my lyrics. I said, Tweety, you spoiling me good, man. You imagine? He said, Mavis, you deserve a teleprompter. Oh, this was so unusual. You don't, you don't, you don't see a caterer. And this caterer, the man would come in the back of, of the loft. He'd be back there by the kitchen. We'd be up front of the corner. We could smell the food. And so we started looking at each other. <laughs> and Tweety would be standing there. He said, nobody eats. Nobody get to eat until this song is finished. So we get together, finish the song. Nobody make them any mistakes because the food smells so. And then it got to where we could tell this guy what we wanted, and he would bring it. What'd you, what'd you get? I wanted corn on the cob, corn on the cob, and some red beans and rice. And then he he always he had he had lasagna, he had uh, the 
best, most beautiful salads and all different salad dressings and rolls. And one day he brought in some barbecue beef and he just, 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 just a variety. Because we were in the studio every day. Now, the very first time we started was December 5th. And we were there maybe about eight days. And we cut for Christmas, you know. And he would bring food every day. Then the next time we went back in, like January. And we were there maybe 10 days. And and I would get upset because some days Tweety, he was so considerate of me. He would call. He would call and tell me. You know how cold it was? It was cold in Chicago. This was our coldest winter in years. And a lot of snow. So I was driving up to the north side every day. He would call maybe and you stay in. You stay in today because you don't need to be coming out in this weather. I work with the band. I said, well, what about my lunch? What about the caterer? I'm going to miss the caterer. <laughs> so, and it will save you something. We'll put it in the fridge for you. I said, no, I'm cool. I'm at home. But uh, I appreciated him, um, you know, being considerate of me out there in that snow and that cold. But he did. This song, one of these old songs that he played for me, that my father used to play for us when we were kids, on his big 78 record. These are old gospel traditional songs. And he started playing them. I said, Tweety, where did you get that? You know, these songs are older than me. They were recorded in the early 30s. And uh, he said, well, maybe I, I like this. I said, yeah, you, you are, you're a young man with an old soul. You like this old soul. You like all the staple singers, stuff from the 50s and 60s. But this song, Wonderful Savior. And these guys were singing a cappella. So we sang this one song a cappella. Something I never done. Never on a record. You know. And uh Tweety gets this big idea, Mavis, we're gonna go out in the corridor. We'll go out in the stairwell and sit. I said, I ain't going out there. I'm not going out there. It's cold out there. It was freezing. It was below zero. I said, it's cold out there. I am not going out there, Tweety. Mavis, we gotta sing this, this the sound, and it was, was good sound. So he told me, he said, somebody get Mavis a coat and a hat, a scarf, and some gloves. Mavis go out there and sing. <laughs> so we went out. You could see the vapor coming from all the We were all around one microphone. And uh, the sound was just great. I have found a wonderful savior. And all of us were, so, so when we went back in, it sounded so good to me. I said, do we need to do it? And we go back and he said, no, that was it. It was good that they don't need to go back. But I was ready to do it again. It was just that, you know, it didn't sound like, like an echo chamber. You know how good people sound, people think they sound really good in the shower. Yeah. Well, it was that kind of sound. Does this so far, the, 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 either the making of the record or just your excitement about it before, does it remind you of any other record that you've made? Yeah, you know, the, the making of it, the songs, the sound, I can't wait for the world to hear it. That's that's what has me so excited. And the, the fact of working with Jeff Tweedy, the, the different, see, this is a different sound for me. And, and um, the songs, he kept me in my comfort zone. The songs are still message songs that I would sing. 
wrote a song for everyone. You're not alone. You know, th this is what I do. This is Mavis singing message songs to inspire and uplift you and, and motivate you to keep on going, you know. So, so but the, 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 the instrumentation, the, the, the sound of those, the, of the, it's a, it's a clearer sound, the guitars, and, and I hear a lot of my father's licks, you know, uh, uh, Rick. The guitar, she plays a lot of possibly. And then by us singing three staple singer songs. See, this, this CD took me back. First, it took me to my childhood with the two Golden Gate Jubilee songs. Those are the two. And then it took me to my teenage years, the songs that the staple singers sang, because we did three staple singer songs from the 50s and 60s. In the 50s, I was a teenager. Then it, uh, it brought me on to this point to where I'm a young lady, you know? So I went full circle, yeah. you know? But no, I'm, I'm, I'm way past a young lady, but I'm just grateful. I'm just grateful to, to even still be here and to be wanting to be heard, you know? Because I've, I've been singing a long time. And for these young people, the way they were, were uh, um, responding to the, the music, you know, that's, that, that makes you feel really good inside. That makes me feel so good. And, and I, I'll, 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 uh, I'll, I'll be grinning the night in my sleep if I get to sleep, because I'm wired up now. You know? <laughs> so so um, yeah. I tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll be, if this continues to happen for me, I will be around a long time, you know. Yeah. And uh, and I'll be young. I'm for that. Yes. Yeah. I'm grateful. You know, I want to at least make it to where my pops was. My pops was 87 years old, and he was still moving. You know, I said I gotta keep on the books. Honestly, I think about that interview all the time because Mavis Staples' energy is just one of the purest things I've ever been around. It's like her love of music, her passion for singing, it animates everything she does. And she plays shows all the time. She's even going to be in Austin uh, during South by Southwest playing at the Luck Reunion event. I mean, I don't even go to South by Southwest anymore, but 80-year-old Mavis, she's on it. And she is doing a series of 80th birthday shows, Mavis and Friends playing concerts in Nashville and New York and L.A. in May uh, for her big 8-0. Oh, man, Mavis Staples, I'm not worthy. Uh, thanks again to her, and of course, uh, big thanks to Bob Mould for his time and candor, and massive thanks to you as well for listening. Episode 24 of LSQ, out in a few weeks, features a conversation with the weird and wonderful Jennifer Harima of Royal Trucks. Uh, they're back in action with a new album in March and a tour coming up in May. Thanks so much. Again, you can reach me with feedback and all sorts of stuff on Twitter, at Jenny LSQ. I'll talk to you next time. 